All right, the Gospel of Mark. We are doing the Gospel of Mark and I always love starting a new book. I think we are going to be in this book. Um, well, I anticipate finishing this book in December 2016. Seriously. Because we'll end up splitting it up with different mini-series along the way, but I think this will be our book for about 52 sessions. So by the time you split it up with different things along the way, I think we'll be finishing it towards the end of next year. And I'm just totally thrilled by that because it is an amazing book. So get out your Bibles, turn please to Mark chapter 1. I've called this very first message, A New Day Dawns. And let's read the first eight verses of this incredible Gospel of Mark. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt round his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we turn the pages of our Bible... And we come now to a fresh study of your word, of your gospel of Mark. Lord, you open our eyes to see the beauty of your son's face and the beauty of all that he has done. Lord, your word is alive and active and and sharper than any double-edged sword. And so, Lord, we, we come to it now aware that it is going to minister to souls. But we don't come to it just assuming that. We don't want to assume on your grace. So, Lord, we ask that. Lord, would you minister to us? Would you affect our hearts each and every week? And would the fruit be that we love your Son more by the end? Help us, Lord. Amen. You know, I remember when I was a kid, I remember one thing that I used to enjoy in my life would be standing on my dad's shoulders. Because I was a small kid. In fact, I was a really small kid. I was about like this big. And that was when I was 12. You know, I was just a really small kid. And I was a really skinny kid. And so I used to love climbing up my dad's back and getting on his shoulders. And I loved doing that because once I got up there, I felt like I could see the world. I felt like I could take the world. But whenever I was up there, without doubt, I always had a much better view. I could see so much more when I was standing on his shoulders. Now, if I did that now at the age of 39, it might be the last thing well, he ever does, or I ever do, um, because I think he would probably pass out and may just pass away in that moment. I can't stand on my dad's shoulders anymore. And yet, as a preacher, I'm aware that I stand on other people's shoulders each and every week. 
Because I've said to you before, I am at best a walking quote. I don't anticipate, as we study the Gospel of Mark, any original thoughts. If, if I have an original thought, I'll let you know. I'll quote myself. But for the rest of the time, I want you to know, I'm not planning on any original thoughts. I thought twice in my life that I had original thoughts. On both occasions, I went on to wake up. I just don't have too many original thoughts in real life, only in my dreams. And even then, I realized, oh, I read that somewhere. And so each and, each and every week when we stand, I'm going to be standing on other people's shoulders. People like Mr. Mahaney, people like Jeff Perswell, James Edwards, who has written a wonderful commentary on Mark, William Lane, Mark Strauss, Kent Hughes, Donald English, and of course my favourite, C.H. Spurgeon. And each and every week I'm going to be standing on shoulders of men like these because I want us to have a better view. I want us to have a good view of this book. And I'm aware I'm, I'm limited but I have a lot of friends that seem less limited. So I'm going to be standing on their shoulders. And I wasn't surprised when I came across the following quote by Bishop J.C. Ryle, really explaining why is it important to study the Gospels. I mean, why Mark? Why do we as a congregation, how do we decide, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and study Mark. This would be a good thing for our church. Well, Mr. J.C. Ryle explains it very well. Listen to the way he says it as to why we should study Mark. It would be well if professing Christians in modern days studied the four Gospels more than they do. And no doubt all Scripture is profitable. It is not wise to exalt one part of the Bible at the expense of another. But I think it would be good for some who are very familiar with the epistles if they knew a little more about Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Now why do I say this? Well... I say it because I want professing Christians to know more about Christ. It is well to be acquainted with all the doctrines and principles of Christianity, but it is better to be acquainted with Christ himself. It is well to be familiar with faith and grace and justification and sanctification. They are all matters pertaining to the king. But it is far better, far better to be familiar with Jesus himself, to see the king's own face, and to behold his beauty. Now the Gospels were written to make us acquainted with Christ. The Holy Ghost has told us the story of his life and death, his sayings and his doings four times over. Four different inspired hands have drawn the picture of the Saviour, his ways, his manners, his feelings, his wisdom, his grace, his patience, his love, his power are graciously enfolded to us by four different witnesses. Ought not the sheep to be familiar with the shepherd? Ought not the patient to be familiar with the physician? Ought not the bride be familiar with the bridegroom? Ought not the sinner to be familiar with the saviour? Beyond doubt it ought to be so. The Gospels were written to make men familiar with Christ and therefore I wish men to study the Gospels. Listen. Surely we cannot know this Christ too well. Surely there is not a work, nor a deed, nor a day, nor a step, nor a thought in the record of his life which ought not to be precious to us. We should labour, we should labour to be familiar with every line that is written about Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? 
And that, my friends, is why we're studying the Gospel of Mark. Because surely we cannot know this Christ too well. Surely there is not a work or a deed or a day or a step or a thought in the record of his life that it should be uninteresting to us or we should be uninvolved with. That's why we are going to labor in the Gospel of Mark to be familiar with every line that is written about Jesus. See, like you, I was sincerely affected at the back end of the book of Philippians. When you encounter Paul, and he makes it clear that the greatest thing in all of his life is knowing Jesus. To live as Christ, to die as gain. I don't mind what takes place, whether I die or whether I live. Listen, I don't mind, because the greatest thing in all my life is just knowing Jesus. Knowing him relationally and personally. That affected me. And I want you, and I want personally, to have that type of relationship with Jesus. The relationship that Paul had, which is why Paul holds himself out as an example, not to tease us, but to say, I want you to experience this too. And that's why then we are going to labor, joyfully labor, to be familiar with every line that is written about Christ in the Gospel of Mark. And what a Gospel it is. And it's important to note from the outset that this Gospel was penned by Mark. And Mark is a guy in the New Testament that is often known as John Mark. And so when you see him at different places in the Bible, he's often referred to as John Mark. That's this Mark. That's this dude that's writing to us now and penning this gospel. And we know quite a bit about him. We meet his parents in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. His parents seem to be a very wealthy family in Jerusalem and they seem to be hosting one of the very first prayer meetings that ever took place in the history of the church. The very first prayer meeting appears to be taking place in Mark's mum and dad's house. We then see John Mark again in Acts chapter 15. And he is infamously the object of a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. It would appear that after Mark got saved, he went on a missions trip with Paul and Barnabas. And by the time the second missionary trip came about, he seemed to want to go again. And Barnabas is like, this is legend. We definitely want to take him. And Paul seems to be saying, you must be joking. There appears to be a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over whether or not they take John Mark. I mean, what a claim to fame, you know what I mean? Yeah, I was the guy that caused the sharp disagreement. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, because of that sharp disagreement, Paul then left and he ended up in Macedonia, modern-day Greece, and that was what God used to bring the gospel to Europe and beyond. So I'm pleased that this guy caused a bit of a rock in that moment as to a disagreement. And yet the thing that is most famous about Mark, I think, but I think sometimes unknown or unrealized, is Mark was incredibly close to the Apostle Peter. See, when you think Timothy, you think Paul, right? Timothy, and Paul was his father in the faith. Well, so too it was with Mark and Peter. Peter was the man that actually led young Mark to the Lord. At some point, Mark has heard the gospel shared to him through Peter, and Peter then discipled Mark throughout his life. And in 1 Peter 5.13, we read that Peter calls Mark his son in the faith. He has great affection for this young man. And so what you discover as you pay careful attention to the early church fathers and as you pay careful attention to the way this gospel is written, what you discover is this is a gospel that is penned by Mark, but is actually an eyewitness account of Peter. This is Peter's words, ultimately. 
And then Mark is compiling it and writing it and dictating it to us. But actually it's the eyewitness account of Peter and we realise that numerous times in the story. Later on we do see Mark very humbly putting himself in it and it's quite a humorous scene. But the rest of the book is, is kind of this, Peter is the main character. And it's done deliberately for us. And yet what I love about this gospel is that without doubt the main character in the book is Jesus. And so we read in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark wants to picard before our eyes Jesus. And he doesn't keep us guessing. Right at the start of the book, he explains that that is what he's going to be doing. He's going to be communicating to us all about Jesus. And so as we seek to put the corner pieces together of this gospel this morning, as I seek to introduce it to you, there's three things that we need to understand that will help us as we set a course to sail through the rest of the book. And here's the first thing. Number one, this gospel is all about Jesus Christ. I can't labour that enough. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This gospel from start to end is all going to be about Jesus Christ. Mark deliberately tells us that right in verse 1 and he also very deliberately wants to tell us right up front in verse 1 about the unique identity of the Saviour, the unique identity of Jesus of Nazareth, namely the unique identity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And seeing that is vital to understanding the way this book is written and what he's trying to do. See, Mark refers to Jesus Christ at various points in this book by various different titles. He calls him teacher, rabbi, Lord, Christ, son of man. And yet the title of Jesus as the son of God is the very storyline of this entire book. The understanding that Jesus is God's own son forms the storyline from start to finish all the way through this gospel. James Edwards then in his wonderful commentary says as follows, he says, This unique identity of Jesus of Nazareth as the son of God is the chief artery of the gospel. It is. It's like a vein that runs throughout the entire book, Jesus being placarded before our eyes as the Son of God. Scholar William Lane says it this way. He says, Jesus as Son of God is the revelation which dominates Mark's gospel. We the readers are given this vital information in the opening verse. And this is to inform our understanding of all that is to follow from this verse. For Mark intends to persuade readers that Jesus is the Son of God, and that his identity as the Son of God is the fulfilment of God's saving promises and plans for mankind. Something Donald English then echoes in his commentary so well when he says, Mark is here providing for us with the basis for his whole gospel. Jesus is uniquely the Son of God and we need to know that from the outset because most who met him during his lifetime didn't recognize Jesus for who he was. But Mark wishes for his readers to be clear about what the church now perceived and proclaimed about him. And this contrast is in many ways the clue, the clue to the meaning of the whole of Mark's gospel. That it is. Jesus as the Son of God 
is the clue to understanding the rest of the Gospel of Mark. So many people that we're going to encounter in this Gospel, particularly early on, have no idea who Jesus is. They can't figure it out. And yet the point that Mark wants to keep going back to is this is surely the Son of God. The question then that runs throughout this Gospel is who then is this Jesus of Nazareth? Who is he? And the question is, you realize it, this gospel that we're examining also examines us. Because all the way through this book, the question that is here for us is, who do you say is? Who do you believe Jesus of Nazareth really was? And it's the storyline that runs through the book. And so in chapter 1, we see Jesus healing a man with an unclean spirit. He's teaching in the synagogue, he's talking away. And a man with an unclean spirit enters, he calls out to him, and Jesus just stops what he's saying, he addresses the man with an unclean spirit, he rebukes the demon, the demon comes out, and everybody's freaking out. Like, what is this? Which is exactly what they say. What is this? A new teaching with authority? For he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Straight up front, they're wondering it. Who is this? How does he do that? Chapter 2, we see Jesus healing a paralytic. This guy is paralyzed. He, he wants to get healed. They find out, there's a whole group of them that find out Jesus is at home. And they think, this is great. I'm going to go see him in his home because I want to be healed. And so he obviously can't move. So his friends start carrying him to Jesus' house. There's no way in. Everybody's crying around the house. So they climb over people's shoulders. They get on the roof. They start digging through the roof. And they lower their friend down to Jesus. Jesus prays for this man. This man is instantly healed. And he rolls up his mat and then proceeds to take his mat and walk out of the home. How full on would that have been? Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? I would have loved to have been there in that moment and see that taking place. And they indeed did loving being there says immediately that everyone present was amazed and they were amazed because they had never seen anything like that before. And the underlying question they're asking is, who is this? How did he do that? In chapter 4 then, we see Jesus calming a storm. The disciples would now have their own very personal and very incredible moment with the Saviour. They're trying to get from one side of the Sea of Galilee to Urala, which is basically effectively a great lake, they're on their way and this massive storm starts taking place when they're in the middle and yet Jesus is asleep. The disciples are freaking out about what's taking place. They wake Jesus up and Jesus stands up and in a moment says, storm, be still. And the storm subsides. And the disciples do what any grown human being would do. They nearly wet themselves in that moment. They are incredibly fearful about what is taking place. And the question that they ask is, who then is this? For even the sea and the wind obey him. There's time after time that in the opening eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark, these instances where we get to see, this is surely the Son of God, and you, we get introduced to people who don't get that, who haven't understood that, that can't seem to get that. Yet all these examples are merely preliminary and preparatory for what comes in Mark chapter 8. Just turn there briefly with me. 
in your Bibles, halfway through the book, because halfway through the book, we have a historic moment of recognition which changes everything. Jesus is now with his disciples, and in chapter 8, verse 27, we read as follows. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? That's great about what they say, but, but who do you who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. It's the first declaration we see in the entire Gospel. No one else has figured out who Jesus is, and yet in this moment, Peter stands and with a loud voice declares to him, You are the Christ. You're the one we've been waiting for. This question of who do you say that I am is the key marker of this entire book. It's the question that Peter had to answer. It's the question that all generations have to answer. It's the question that one day each and every one of us in this room will have to answer. While you walk this earth, who do you believe Jesus is? Because according to the Bible, our declaration to that here on earth makes a massive difference to our eternal worth. makes a massive difference to what takes place there, what we believe here. Who do you say that I am? At this moment, Peter answers wonderfully, I say, you are the Christ. The whole of the first half of the Gospel has been building to this moment. From that moment onwards, Mark very deliberately moves from who then is this to what has he come to do? The tone of the book changes from who then is the Messiah, we've just declared it to be Jesus, to what then is the Messiah coming to do? What is he going to do in his life? And so Jesus begins to explain to them, to his dear disciples, exactly what he's come to do. And when he starts to communicate to the disciples about what he has come to do, they are totally and utterly unprepared for. Chapter 8, verse 31, he says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. The disciples were totally unprepared for that. The disciples had always thought that the Christ, the Messiah, would come ultimately with a sword and would kick the Romans out of Jerusalem, and now as a new nation, they would reign over all. And they wanted a bit of that. As you get later on in the book, they're saying, hey, when did we get into the kingdom? Can I sit at your right and can I sit at your left? Because, you know, we want to have good positions in the kingdom. And yet Jesus starts explaining to them, listen, I haven't come with a sword, I've come to suffer. I haven't come in victory for the now, I've come in the victory for the then. I've come to usher in a new kingdom. And that kingdom is not going to come through the sword. That kingdom is going to come through my suffering. Well, Peter can barely cope with this news. As you will get used to Peter, I love Peter. I can relate to Peter in certain ways. I have friends like Peter. I love Peter. Verse 32, and he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside. I mean, I know you're the Messiah, but come here, young man. 
And he began to rebuke him. Well, this is the Saviour's response. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Talk about being put in your place. That will do it. What he's basically saying is, Peter, you do not understand. I haven't come now with the sword. Yes, I have come to bring in a new kingdom, but it will not be a kingdom of this world. It's a kingdom of the heavenly realms. It's a kingdom that will come through my suffering. It's a kingdom that will come through my life and my death and resurrection. And so right now, I have come as the Christ to suffer. And it's a suffering we see detailed for us then in the rest of the book. James Edwards, in his commentary, writes the following. He says, The surprise and key to understanding the Son of God is his suffering. The references in chapter 1 to the way of God and to prepare the way of the Lord. In Mark, all these references lead to the cross. These ways lead us to the cross. And what is unique about Mark's writing is that the death of the main character then is a prominent feature in his writing. Mark devotes almost as much papyrus to the final week of Jesus' life as he does to the previous three plus years of ministry, thus revealing the importance of the Saviour's death on the cross. And as William Lane has so wonderfully put it, Mark's gospel has often been described as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. I think that's true. All the way up to chapter 8, we're wondering, who is this? But after chapter 8, we change in tone to seeing the Saviour's suffering very deliberately. And what you discover then is that although this Gospel starts off as a narrative with a great pace, as the hour of the Saviour's death approaches, it slows down greatly. The pace slows from months to weeks to days to just hours and then minutes leading us to a place called Calvary where we get to see and survey the cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Mark's not rushing us around that scene. And when we get there, neither will we want to be rushed around that scene. Because it's there, maybe more than anywhere, where you get to see the Saviour's beauty and majesty and glory and grace and love in all that he has done. And it's there as we gather around Calvary, as we gather around the cross, that this book, a specifically written book, crescendos. Turn with me to chapter 15. Because as Jesus is dying on the cross, he breathes his last, and at that moment the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom and there is a centurion there. A Gentile centurion who does not know Jesus Christ. And this is what he says. Verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him, Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. That's what this book has been building to. All the way through. 
And with that phrase, surely, truly this man was the Son of God, this book completes its circle. Right at the start of the book, we are introduced to the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he's going to seek to show us that surely Jesus is the Son of God. All these people didn't understand it. But surely as you examine his works, surely this is the Christ, surely this is the Son of God. Peter then orchestrates it and declares it clearly. You are surely the Christ. And from that moment on, we we see Jesus suffer. We see him walk through tragedy and difficulty. But we also see him responding in triumph. And as he dies in the place of all sinful mankind, it is a centurion, a Gentile centurion, that would have seen people dying on a cross all the time, but not someone like this. This is surely different. Because surely he is the Son of God. This gospel is all about Jesus Christ. The beginning to the end. It's all about Jesus. Mark wants to picard before our eyes the glories and majesties of Jesus Christ. But that's not all. That was my longest point before you start panicking. This gospel is all about Jesus Christ. But number two... This gospel is rooted in the old. Look at me again at verse 1. He very deliberately writes, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This gospel is all about Jesus Christ. And yet Mark wants us to understand very clearly this gospel is rooted in the old. When you read those first words, the beginning, you remember another point in the Bible where we read the beginning, in the beginning. It's deliberate. Mark's deliberately putting it there because he wants us to know a new day is dawning. A new day for Christ has come. A new day dawns, and yet this new day hasn't just happened by accident, hasn't happened randomly, hasn't just appeared from nowhere. This new day is rooted in the old. For in the beginning, God created all things. Genesis 3, then 15, mankind lets God down, mankind rejects God, and as God then enters the garden, he talks to the serpent, and he makes it clear to the serpent, Satan... The one day one will come. And although you will bruise his heel, he will crush your head. And from then onwards, all the way through the Old Testament, the question is, who is this serpent crusher? Who's it going to be? Who's the one who's going to crush the head of Satan? Who is he going to be? And there's lots of shadows and types that run throughout the Old Testament. There are thousands of years of Old Testament prophets then that step into the fray prophesying of the one to come, prophesying about Jesus, where he was going to be born, what he was going to be like, what he was going to do, all about this serpent crusher to come. And one of the greatest, without doubt, prophets of all was Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied about the Saviour to come. He prophesied of one who would come hundreds of years after him. He prophesied of one who would be a man of sorrows, who people wouldn't recognise, first of all, whose own people would reject him. 
For all like sheep have gone astray out, but how he would come and he would, he would die and suffer in the place of all mankind. And what's unique and glorious about the prophet Isaiah is he not only prophesied about the one to come, but he prophesied about the one who would precede the one to come. That's cool. What did he prophesy? Well, it's right here. He prophesied about how God would send a messenger before their face to prepare the way. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Isaiah saw a day not only of the Christ to come, but of the one preceding him to come, who would be preparatory in nature, who would be encouraging people to prepare the way, who would be ultimately bringing repentance to the nation of Israel. And lo and behold, in verse 4, then Mark very importantly says, John appeared. This one that everybody's been waiting for, the one whose message was to prepare the way, he appeared. He has arrived. And this greatest of Old Testament prophets wouldn't have the joy of pointing onwards to a saviour to come in the distant future. This final Old Testament prophet would have the profound joy of not pointing to and onward to this one to come, but actually point at him. Say, behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. Mark wants us to know that without doubt there is a new day dawning. Well, this is a new gospel. This is fresh gospel news. A new day has dawned. But this hasn't, just hasn't happened by accident. Now, this started in the beginning and weaved its way all through the tapestry of the Old Testament all the way to the arrival of John, the last of the Old Testament prophet, who now points at Jesus. Says, This is him. This is the one we've been waiting for. This moment then, according to Mark, hasn't just happened by chance. No, this gospel is rooted in the old. And isn't that just wonderful? Suddenly as we examine this gospel, we have the juggernaut of the Old Testament driving behind it. Helping us see we were always waiting for this. Mankind was always waiting for this. This gospel is all about Jesus Christ. And this gospel is rooted in the old. But here's the third part of the jigsaw. This gospel is good news for all. Look with me at verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt round his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. You know, John was an incredibly popular man. He was the David Beckham of the day, or wherever it is now. I mean, David Beckham is probably more my day, but you know what I'm saying? He was a really popular guy. Everybody knew who John the Baptist was. The front page of the Galilean Times would have been John the Baptist. You know, he was just everywhere. Everybody wanted a piece of John the Baptist. He was profoundly popular. And as we read there in verse 5, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. That's thousands and thousands of people. There is a revival of repentance going on in Judea and Jerusalem. They are coming out in their thousands to be baptized by John 
uh, by Mark, uh, sorry, John. It's just confusing when you've got John and Mark and John Mark. And... They're coming out in their thousands to be baptized by John into a baptism of repentance, a preparatory baptism which is going to point to the Saviour to come. John is profoundly popular and yet what I love about him is he's also profoundly humble. He knew that he wasn't the bridegroom. He knew he was just a voice crying in the wilderness. He knew that although he was popular now, he would use that to effect, to ultimately point everybody to the one to come who is far mightier than him. He didn't want the attention for himself. He always wanted to understand that he was preparing the way for another that was far mightier than him and he makes it clear that after him would come one whose strap, whose sandals, he would not be worthy to stoop down and untie. Can you imagine that? If whoever the profoundly popular person is of this day says, listen, somebody's going to come and I'm not able to just even tie their shoelaces. You'd be like, what? You know, to, to strap somebody's sandals in this day and age would have been the lowest and the low responsibility. Not even a slave would do it. It would have to be a Gentile slave. It would have to be the lowest people on the agenda. Oh, you can do that. But no one else is going to do it because this is the lowest of the lowest of the low jobs. And John's clear. Although I am popular today, one is coming who is far mightier than I and I wouldn't even be worthy to do that before him. And in verse 8, he explains why. What is it about this one to come that makes him mightier than John? We read this. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What is it about him that will make him far greater than I? Well, I just baptized you with water. But he will baptise you with the Spirit. John knew full well that his mission was to point people to the Saviour, was to prepare the way for the Saviour, to call them to repent of their sin, to make straight their paths, and to respond with baptism as a sign of the repentance that they feel in their heart. To be baptised with water as a sign of being washed clean that they're all coming out to do as they're getting baptised, they're confessing their sins before the Lord, they want to follow the Lord and they're responding with baptism as a mere sign that their sins are being washed away. It is a preparatory baptism and it is a meaningful baptism and an important baptism but John knows full well this baptism pales into insignificance compared to the baptism that the mighty one will bring. Because whilst John's message is to point to the Saviour, he knew the one that would come after him, his message and his life was to save. His responsibility was to come as the Saviour. And through his life and his death and his resurrection, he would make it possible then not just for people to be washed clean on the outside, but to be washed clean and transformed on the inside by being baptised in the Spirit. Through his life and death and resurrection, this Saviour would come. That everybody who went to put their faith in him as their Lord and Saviour would in that moment be baptised in the Spirit, would be forgiven of their sin as far as the east is from the west, would be reconciled to God and made right with God the Father, would be redeemed to that which they were made for that would be adopted into the very Father's family and would know for sure that heaven is going to be their home. 
John's mission was meaningful, but he knew my message is just to point to the Saviour and yet the one to come after me is the Saviour. He's the one that is going to make everything that life has been waiting for possible. So compared to him, I'm not even worthy to tie sandals. And my friends, the rest of this gospel which points us to the Son of God, the Saviour that came, is the reason why this gospel is good news for every single one of us in this room. Because behold, the Lamb has come. James Edwards says it this way. In the Greco-Roman world, the word gospel, which we see here in verse 1, the word gospel or good news always appears in the plural, meaning one good tiding among many others. But in the New Testament, the word gospel appears only in the singular. It is the good news of God in Jesus Christ, besides which there is no other news. And this good news isn't for a select few Roman citizens, but for the outcast and for sinners and for Jew and Gentile alike. Isn't that wonderful? This good news affects every single individual in this room. If it is true, it is true for all. If it is a false, it is an entire waste of time. But it can't be true for some and not true for others. If Jesus Christ really is the Son of God, if he really is the Messiah that was always promised, then every word changes everything. Not only this day, but for all eternity to come. And I believe it is true. And I believe then that he has come. The Son of God has come. And through faith and in him, we may have life and that in abundance. We may be forgiven just like he tells us. Redeemed just like he tells us. Adopted just like he tells us. Knowing for sure that heaven is our home just like he tells us. By putting our faith in him as Lord and Saviour. All because of and through his finished work on the cross. And so as J.C. Ryle puts it, surely we cannot know this Christ too well. Surely there is not a work, nor a deed, nor a day, nor a step, nor a thought in the record of his life which ought not to be precious to us. So we should labour. What a happy labour I trust this will be for us. We should labour to be familiar with every line that is written about Jesus. This gospel is about Jesus Christ. This gospel is rooted in the old. And this gospel is good news for all. So just a few encouragements to close, a few bullet points as to how I think we can prepare for this season of studying the gospel of Mark. Number one, I want to encourage you, make the time somewhere in the next few weeks to read the gospel of Mark in one sitting. See, that's how it was written. It wasn't written for us to go, you know what, I'll do a few, you know, tiny verses and then like... Have you ever tried reading a novel like that? It's really hard. When you're reading a narrative, we we need to read it together so we can understand what's going on. So I encourage you, make the time somewhere in the next few weeks to read the Gospel of Mark in one sitting. Patrick actually did it on Friday afternoon, 46 minutes. It'll take you 46 minutes and he's quite a slow reader. I'm even slower. would have been about an hour and a half. But in 46 minutes. So that's the type of time you need. And for those of you with small children, I want to say husbands lead in this. So provide time, 46 minutes. 
for your wife to sit down and go through this in one sitting. And if you've never done that, you will find this experience is very different. This is glorious. Like reading a letter in its entirety. Exactly. So make the time somewhere in the next few weeks to read the Gospel of Mark in one sitting. Number two, take the time to study this Gospel in your own devotions. Having done the speedboat tour, take the time then in your own devotions to take just small texts at a time and to really understand them and pray over them. What do they tell you about Jesus? What do they point to you about who he is? What does this mean for your life? Number three, buy and use an ESV study Bible. I consistently get asked at different times, what are the best commentaries of different books? Honestly, ESV study Bible. Start there. You know, some of the best stuff I've got, seriously, has come from the ESV study Bible. And I've read like pages and pages and pages and commentaries. And then the ESV study Bible says it in two sentences. You think, yeah, I love that. And it's just very clear and very helpful. Buy and use an ESV study Bible. It's got diagrams in it. It's got maps in it. It's got pictures in it. It's going to help explain different things. It's really profound. I would recommend that for every single individual. Number four, come ready and eager to learn on a Sunday. Come ready and eager. My friends, if we really believe we're gathering to encounter the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, we don't want to be coming in at 20 to 11 in a rush. That is not how you prepare to encounter the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's not. We need to be early, aware that I want to encounter God this morning. I want to be walking around Calvary. I don't want to be distracted about, did I leave the oven on? I don't want to be distracted about any of those things be able to think about Jesus. So I need to be here to prepare my soul ready for that moment. So arrive early and arrive eager and ready to learn on a Sunday. Number five, discuss what you're learning with others. In your life groups, outside of life groups, let's talk about what we're learning on a Sunday. What is God revealing to you from his word and from the gospel of Mark? And number six, finally, Pray and cry out to God for help. Because this isn't just a reading exercise. We need God the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, don't we? So that we may seek and savour all that Jesus Christ has done for it. So cry out to him for help. Ask him for help and he will. And I think that's the best way I can conclude this message. So let's stand together. If the band could come out to prepare to lead us in song... And I'm going to pray for us all. Let's pray. Well, Lord, how magnificent you are that you would cause your servant Mark to pen for us a narrative about you. A narrative that would have come through the eyes of Peter who knew you and walked with you. Lord, as we examine this book, which we see the beauty of who you are, would this be a joyful labour for us? As we gather each and every week around your word, would we hold our breaths as we prepare to see you? Not that we would just learn about you, but that we would fall more and more in love with you. Lord, you know the cry of my heart. 
is that we would all know as a congregation that we would all know you like Paul knew you. And so Lord, as we examine then your word, as we see the mighty one, the Son of God has come. Would you take our breath away? And would we love you all the more? In Jesus' name, amen.